You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. With the first foundation in place, repentance from acts that lead to death, Philip Edwards will continue this week to explain the foundations of faith towards God and the laying on of hands. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk for all the latest news and upcoming events. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Let me just take you to those two key verses found in Hebrews. We're studying from Hebrews chapter 6. I'll remind you of the two verses that we're looking at. It says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundations of repentance from acts that lead to death, of faith in God, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment, and permitting, we will do so. By God's grace, we will do those things. I've changed the order of things a little bit tonight because I wanted to do baptisms next week so there are two baptisms we're going to look at the baptism of righteousness and then the baptism of the holy spirit so i brought uh, the laying on of hands a little bit forward and we're going to deal that after we've looked at faith faith then salvation is by faith alone we to be born again of the spirit of god it, it is only by faith and faith in God. It says in Ephesians 2 and 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That's saying that God has been gracious to us in his mercy. He has offered us salvation and we have to lay hold of that salvation through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And Romans 5 and 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, That which has justified us, uh, one teacher uses the expression justified is, is just as if you'd never sinned. Justified means just as if you'd never ever sinned. We're justified through faith. We must ask ourselves though, the faith that we are exercising and the faith that others exercise uh, to be saved, is it true biblical faith? Can we be deceived about the very faith that we think we're exercising? I don't say this to cause you to worry, and I'm sure by the end of this evening, if, if there is any concern about it, we will deal with all that and you'll have a, cle- a complete assurance of, of the faith that you have. But I believe possibly there are people who are attending church and they haven't exercised true biblical faith. Now, every person is born with the ability to exercise faith. This is a natural ability that we have, made in the likeness and image of God. Although we've fallen from grace, we still exercise a lot of his uh, attributes. There are bits in us that reflect God. So we have a natural faith. As children, we put faith in our parents. We put then faith in maybe other people, faith in people in authority. We put our faith in the police, in doctors, in teachers. And often when we're let down, we're very disappointed because we've 
put faith in them. Another word for faith is trusting. We've trusted them and we've been let down. Valid biblical faith is faith in God. Now, we're not born with this faith. It's not something that we have. Due to the fall, this is something that was severed. The relationship from uh, Adam and Eve and God, it, it was broken. Now, there's a sense in which Adam didn't have faith because he lived with God. Adam didn't have to exercise faith, per se, because he saw him regularly and walked with him. But his two sons, Cain and Abel, and then the third, they had to exercise faith because they never lived in the presence of God in that way. So biblical faith then is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we say faith in God, we're putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in what he has said and what he has done for us. The truth is that Christ has died for every person in the world. He's died for everyone, but only those who exercise true biblical faith in Jesus will be saved. It's available to everyone, but not everyone takes hold of it. So this, is, this faith then is a gift from God in so much that Jesus has been revealed to us before we can exercise faith in him. He has to be revealed to us. This is part of the gift of God's grace to us that he opens our eyes to the truth and the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Now, it is the Holy Spirit who comes to us to reveal to our spirit who Jesus Christ is. It's not a question of simply believing that God exists or that Jesus exists, uh, because from the standpoint of being a historical person, there's no question in the existence of Jesus, but we've got to believe who he is, that he is the son of God. Hebrews 6, 1 and 2 tells us that faith in God is foundational. These are the foundational teachings. Does that mean then, without repentance and faith, we cannot even come into the kingdom? We cannot even start this Christian life? So these two are really importantly foundational because without them, we don't even start on this journey. It's possible that some people are building their Christian life on something that is not truly foundational faith. I want to suggest one or two examples to you, and you might think, oh, yes, perhaps I was like this once, or I've done a bit of this, I've tried to be building my life on something that is something apart from Christ. Let me give you one or two examples. Miracles. If we're building our Christian life on miracles or experiences, it's an incorrect foundation. Often Jesus would say to the people that saw him do miracles and were there, he told them to not to tell other people, to be quiet about this. It says in Mark 5 and 43, he gave strict orders not to tell anyone what he had done. See, there were many who were following Jesus, uh, following him because of his miracles, because of his provision, because of the excitement, because of what could possibly happen. The miracles that Jesus performed, 
They were vital, they were important, but in a way they were a calling card. They were a way of saying to the people, I am who I say I am. I am the Son of God. I am the I am. It was also to not only prove who he was, but to draw people to him so they would listen to his message. His message was more important than his miracles. And for you, it is what he says is more important than a miracle that you might experience in your life or see others. So we have to be a little bit careful. Now, I want to see miracles like everyone else, but we don't focus on simply the miracles, but we're listening to what he is saying to us. Faith founded on an experience or a miracle, it will not stand. You have to be careful that you don't let people's testimonies impact your theology. Uh, Sometimes we can hear stories about all different things and we end up building a theology based on people's stories or people's experiences. Now, I'm all for hearing good testimonies and I'm, I'm all for knowing what God is doing, but our theology must be based on the Word of God, the things that Jesus taught in his Word and uh, the whole of Scripture, really. That is where our faith comes from. It's not on experiences. Secondly, another incorrect foundation is that we can, if we're not careful, we build it on a person. We get taken up with the ministry of one particular person. And instead of allowing Christ's teaching to affect us, we allow this person's teaching to affect us. In Hebrews, uh, sorry, in Matthew 17, 14 to 23, we read the account of where a man brought his son who needed some healing, some deliverance, to the disciples of Jesus. Jesus wasn't around at the time. And he says this, he says, I brought him, that's my son, to your disciples, but they could not heal him. He brought his son to them, but they could not heal him. Does this indicate that the man was having faith, not in so much what Jesus was saying or in God himself, but in the men that were doing the miraculous the men that were anointed of God. Jesus rebukes this man, and he also rebukes the whole generation at that time. He says this, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I think, I think what he was saying is, you're all clamouring after the blessings of God. You're, you're coming to the people that can do the things to you. Well, really, the message is turn around and come to God. It's God, really. So they un- failed to understand, really, who Jesus was. Still looking to men rather than looking to God. Now, it's wonderful when we find someone or know of someone that has a special anointing. We want to go to that person and we want that person to minister to us. And this was true in the case of the disciples or the apostles. They went out with a special anointing. But there's a warning here for us today. We might seek help from the, those that are anointed, but really, in, even in their blessing, they should be pointing us to Jesus. Whether it's a healing or a deliverance or something else, uh, their anointing, is, is, is used by God to, to bless you, but really they should be pointing you to Christ all the time.
possible another incorrect foundation is we build our Christianity, our religion, we build it on the church. When we witness to other people, instead of witnessing about Jesus and the power of Jesus and the name of Jesus, we, we, we evangelise about our church. We tell people to come to our church or to follow the Christian religion. That's never a good move. Really, when we share with other people, we should share Jesus Christ with them. That which we know, or who we know personally, and what we know about him, it is that which we should evangelise and share with people. It says in John 12 and 32, But I, he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw men to myself. So be careful you're not lifting up your church when you evangelise. Lift up Jesus Christ. And it sometimes might feel a bit strange to you. We say, oh, well, I'll take you to my church. Well, really, we should think of taking people to Jesus, introducing them to Jesus, pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must believe only in Jesus I want to remind you of the account that's found in Acts chapter 16, where we read of uh, Paul and Silas, they went on this missionary trip to Philippi. Their actions were such that they so infuriated the authorities there that the two found themselves cast into prison. It says that night as they were singing and praising God that an earthquake sent by God shook the whole prison. The prison foundations shook and the doors flew open and it says the chains, they they fell off the people. The jailer was terrified of what had happened because he was responsible for those that he was, uh, those locked in the prison. So he took a sword and was about to kill himself thinking the end would be terrible. But Paul ordered him not to do this. He said, no, stop, It, it won't be bad. The jailer then asked, he asked this question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Or, how can I save myself? What what can I do to save myself? Paul's response is this, you can do nothing. You cannot save yourself. All you can do is put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't think he was crying out for redemption, salvation for one minute. I don't think he had an idea about being saved or God or anything else. He was thinking, how can I be saved from this terrible situation that I find myself in? And at first you might think, oh, was that a really smart answer, Paul, to say Jesus? Well, in some ways, Jesus is the answer to all our problems. Uh, He is the answer. And so uh, he says, you know, well, Jesus is the answer. He says he, he takes um, Paul and Silas to his home and he, he, he binds them up and everything else. And then they preach to him the gospel. And the man then receives Jesus Christ as his saviour. I'm not sure whether the shaking of the prison was to get this man saved or to release Paul and Silas. Well, I think probably God did two things with with one action. And so the the two happened. They were very much in the will of God. So the the jailer and his family, they were born again of the Spirit of God. How were they born again? They simply put their faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. What must I do to be saved? The answer is nothing. We can do nothing to be saved. We simply have to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So salvation doesn't come to us ever by what we do, but by what we believe. What we believe about Jesus Christ. And we must believe the right things. It appears as you read through your scriptures, you find uh, an invalid faith. What do I mean by this? Well, in 2 Corinthians 6 and 1, we read this. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. So you can receive the grace of God in vain. What does this mean? It means God is offering you the grace, through his grace, the gift of salvation, but you're not taking it. You hear, you understand, but you're not receiving it by faith. A couple of warnings here. The first warning is hearers might give mental assent to what is being said. They might even enjoy what the preacher's saying. They might hear the wonderful stories, they might hear everything, but they're not taking what is being said by faith. They are not receiving Jesus Christ into their hearts. They, they, they want to enjoy everything that's going on, but they're not receiving it. They're not receiving the message by faith. They're not letting it affect their hearts. They're not allowing the Holy Spirit to come in. So they want to be saved, but they want to keep Jesus outside. Now, you think, oh, that's a strange thing. They're not receiving God's gift of salvation. They're receiving God's grace in vain. It's useless. It's invalid. It's fruitless. It's worthless. It has to come into the heart. It has to be believed and received to do its work. The second warning is not enough to believe what is convenient. I've met some Christians who believe what is convenient for them to believe. To get baptised, they do that, thinking through baptism they can be saved. Or they go to church regularly, thinking, well, if I go to church, that's being saved. Well, they'll only go on one day to discover that wasn't salvation at all. That was a ritual act that they went through. Now, if you're evangelical in your persuasion and your teaching and your thinking, you'd say to yourself, is it possible that there could be people who go to church for years and have never really got saved, never really received Jesus Christ as their saviour? The Holy Spirit has never really come and they've received him into their heart. Now, I could give you an example in my life. Um, in one of my ministries, we had a lot of Asian people. Uh, mostly they were from Iran. And um, what I discovered is that they wanted to be baptised. If they could convince the authorities that they were Christians, they would eventually be allowed to stay in the country. 
Now, I was a bit slow realising this because I used to sit with them and they used to say, well, you know, I want to be baptised. And of course, I'd ask them all the requisite questions of what they believed about Jesus and who God was and all of these things. And if they were trusting in Jesus, of course, they would say, yes, yes, yes. They had learned what all the answers were. And so there was no way in which I could not baptise them. But when I look back, I think and I wonder, I wonder if they were truly truly receiving Christ into their heart or had just gone through some sort of ritual with me to make sure they got baptised so they could put that date on a piece of paper to convince the authorities that they had come to this country and they were truly Christians. In the scriptures we have uh, two uh, contrasting conversions. They're found in the book of Acts. If you uh, look at it and read through it after our study here, we read about two people who came to Christ and it appears that they received him as their saviour. One is, is found in the first part of Acts uh, chapter 8 is Simon the sorcerer. And the second one is found in the, the latter part of the chapter, the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, Simon's conversion experience, it really comes into serious question. He says, um, it seems it appears as, as Philip preached the gospel there and he saw all the miracles that Philip was doing, he responded and it says that Simon was baptised. The questions we have to ask ourselves as we read through that story, and it's in great detail for us, was he only impressed by Philip's miraculous signs or did the Holy Spirit really convict him of his sin? Then we see that Peter and John come and they get people filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's another demonstration of the Spirit's power. And he seems to want this. So what he's seen is the, the, the miraculous demonstrated. And because he was a sorcerer himself and had great influence on the community, he sees, oh, I could do with this power. I want this power. Did he only get baptised so that he might lay hold of this power? Well, we don't know uh, because scripture isn't clear. Now, he goes to Peter when Peter's there with John and he offers to buy with money the power that John and Peter have. Now, I want to read Peter's very severe rebuke to, the, uh, to the, uh, Simon the sorcerer. It says in Acts 8, 22 and 23, Peter answered, may your money perish with you. That's the first thing he says. And I just thought, you know, John 3.16, if we don't receive him, we perish. And I thought, well, that's probably the same word. He, because he said, you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry. So what Peter and John saying, you have nothing to do with us. You can't be part of who we are and what we are because your heart is not right before God. Well, if he had got himself saved, his heart would be right before God, but it wasn't. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Well, it's a bit strong, isn't it, for someone who's just come to the Lord Jesus Christ to receive him. It's a fairly harsh rebuke. And he says, you're still captive to sin. Is he still in the dominion of darkness or has he stepped out of that into the dominion of light? So, but the, the bud is never clear. He, he says, please pray for me that I might change. So 
you can give him the benefit of the doubt and believe that he was saved but just really mixed up or was he really saved at all but if you compare this conversion experience of Simon with uh, the Ethiopian that follows on it says this in Acts 8 26 and 40. Now he is searching for the truth he's not trying to get anything he's not trying to gain anything he simply wants the truth. Philip explains it to him he says how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? Tell me, please, he says to Philip. Philip explains, he's immediately baptised and he goes on his way rejoicing. So as you read through these passages on your own, thinking, oh, was really Simon the sorcerer born again or not? It appears he could have been, but he wasn't. The Ethiopian, you're much more positive in thinking that he was. So just to help you in your study there. What must we believe to ensure that faith is genuine? Is there something specific that we've got to believe to be saved? Well, the first thing that we have to believe is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the only person who is born from God. We weren't born from God. We were created And we were born from earthly parents. But Jesus was born of God. He came from God. It says in John 8 and 24, I told you that you would die in your sins if you did not believe that I am, and then in brackets, the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. So if we do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the only Son of God, and he came in the flesh, we cannot be saved. It put in brackets the one I claim to be. I'm going to take that bracket out and read it to you again because it still makes a lot of sense when you realise who the I am is. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. Well, if you've read your Bible much especially John's Gospel, the I am is the name for God. He is the I am. I am the bread of life. I am the door. Uh, I am the way, the truth and the life. And that was the name that God said to Moses. Moses said, who shall I say you are? And he says, say that I am. So Jesus was saying here, I am, I am God. I am in essence come from God. I am the son of God. So Jesus is not simply a good man. He is not a prophet. He is not just the wisest man that ever walked on the earth. He is the one and only Son of God. You must believe that Jesus is God. If you don't believe that, the word of God is clear, we cannot be saved. The second thing that you must believe You must believe that the actual physical body of Jesus rose from the dead. The body that was put in the tomb, it rose from the dead. It says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So Jesus paid for your sins through physically dying on the cross. He physically had to die 
for your sins to be forgiven. It had to be a physical, real act. His death cancelled all of your sin. He fully justified us. We've looked at that word earlier. And now there is no record of sin against you. It's been removed totally. We are found in Christ. It is as though Christ lived a perfect life. And as we are in Christ, as God looks at us, he sees our perfect life lived in Christ. That is what we call his imputed righteousness. He has made us righteous because of Christ and because of his death. Jesus proved to us by raising Jesus from the dead that the price that Jesus paid was sufficient to cover all of our sin. If Christ never rose from the dead, nor will you. You will die in your sin, and so you will stay there apart from God. But faith in Jesus Christ that he rose from the dead is sufficient for God to justify us that he is alive and that our sins are forgiven. The third thing you must consider, so those are the two objective things, the things we're going to look at now are more subjective. Do you know that the truth is in, uh, is in your heart and not just in your head? Do you know in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? He died for you and he rose. It says in James 2 and 19, you believe that there is one God. It says, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. Well, we know that the demons aren't saved and can't be saved. So knowing the facts about Jesus, knowing who he is, is not sufficient. We have to have faith in who he is. There has to be a working in our heart. It's knowing Jesus himself that counts, not knowing about him, not knowing the facts about him, but actually knowing him ourself. Remember on one occasion, those that had performed some miracles, uh, the passage in Matthew 7, it's still, a lot, I have still a lot of questions about this passage of scripture, so it's all right if you have lots of questions. You don't have to settle everything, it's, it's quite all right, and sometimes you settle things a bit rashly, you've got to unsettle them and look at them again. But he said, Jesus said, depart from me, because I never knew you. I never knew you. You didn't know me and I didn't know you. So it's knowing Jesus that's vital for our salvation. The fourth thing is, has the fruit of your life changed since you believed in Jesus? From the day that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, has your life changed? If it hasn't, there's a question mark there. Is love the new value system that rules your heart? Is it love that rules your heart? Love for your family, love, love for your neighbours, love for God, love. Is it love? Is it the values of love that govern your heart on a daily basis? Or do you still live by your old values? John the Baptist, he wouldn't baptise the, the Pharisees, remember? They came to him to be baptised and he says, no, I'll only baptise you when you change your actions. You, you want to appear to say the right things, but your heart is far from what you're saying. Your heart needs to be different. The Pharisees believe with their heads, 
but not their hearts. They could not love. They could not do what John required of them. It says in Luke 3, 7 and 8, he calls them, you brood of vipers. He says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The last thing here is, has the direction of your life changed since you believed in Jesus? Were you walking in one direction and all of a sudden it's changed and you're moving and some of you might have had to do a 180 degree turn? Do you move in a new direction? James 2 and 20 says this. He says, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? You say, if you say you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I should be able to see it. It should be evident in your life, in your conversation, in your thinking, in what you're doing. True, genuine biblical faith is evidenced in your own life. And that is a great reassurance to you. If you think to yourself, I'm not the person I was. I'm not living the same. I'm not doing the same. I'm not thinking the same. I'm not speaking the same. Since I came into a relationship with Jesus Christ, everything has changed in my life. That is the greatest evidence and proof to ourselves that we're born again. So there are true proofs. There is the what we believe, what we call the objective proofs, that Jesus is the Son of God. We know that to be a truth and that he rose from the dead. And then there is the subjective proof. Sorry, the first is the objective. This is the subject. The actual changes that have taken place in our lives. Little list here that you might just, just go through in your head and just tick them off. Do you love God? Do you love God? Do you really love him? Have you been liberated from your old way of thinking to actually love God? Do you ever think to yourself or lay on your bed and say, God, I love you. I just love you. It's as simple as that. It's not complicated. Is there repentance in your life? Do you turn around from time to time? When God points out something that's wrong, it's not good enough to simply say, oh, I'm sorry, God, I, I won't do that again. God wants you to turn and to stop doing something and to, re, to uh, actually cut it out of our lives completely. We looked last week and said that's truly what repentance is. Do you sorrow over sin? Does it sadden your heart either when you sin or you see all the sin around you in the world? Does it make you feel a little bit sad? Do you have genuine humility? Remember when the prodigal returned to the Lord? He said, uh, returned to his father, I should say. He said, make me a, a servant. Is there genuine humility in your life? Do you live to glorify God? Are you seeking the glory of God in your life? Or are you seeking the glory of your own life? Are you selfish? Or are you full of love for others? A selfless love. Lord, I love you and I love my neighbour. I love them, Lord. I genuinely love them. Is there separation from, from the world in your life? Do you find that you don't fit in anymore to this world? You're not comfortable. Maybe once you were comfortable, you, you fitted in, but now you don't seem to fit. You don't fit in in the workplace too. I mean, you're doing quite good, but you just don't fit to this world and you know it's not really your home. 
spiritual growth and maturity. You know, if you're alive to God, you'll grow in God. Everything that's alive, it grows. And finally, you can tick off this one. Am I obedient? When you hear the voice of God and as you continue to hear him, do you obey what he says? Do you follow him in obedience? Now, I haven't said these to frighten you or make you think that you're not saved, but to, so you would have assurance. There's enough tick off things there to think, thanks, Phil, that's helpful. Yes, I know what it is. And I know now I have to speak to people about Jesus Christ. And, and by speaking about him and drawing people to him and realising it's all about Jesus, that is the essence of faith, faith to be saved. So faith is vital. It's a vital foundation stone that has to be established in our life and uh, to make sure that those we communicate with and fellowship with and live with, if they're claiming to be Christians, that they too have a solid faith uh, in their lives. We're going to move on now to that other subject, the laying on of hands. Of all the six foundational teachings, I thought this one, as I remember studying it originally, it was a bit odd. I see how the others are very important. I mean, uh, repentance is vital, something that we do. Then I thought how faith is really vital and important. That's something we do. It isn't something we talk about. It isn't a concept. It isn't a doctrine. Faith has to be real and genuine. I thought about baptisms. They are important too. We go through baptisms. Baptism of water, baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a baptism where we enter through suffering. And then, of course, there's uh, the resurrection from the dead. That's going to be a real physical event. And judgment. We will stand before Jesus Christ. And I thought, these are all important things. They all take place in our life. But the laying on of hands... Surely that's not as important as all the others. Then I thought, oh, you could actually be a Christian and go all the way through your Christian life and no one ever lay hands on you. And you never lay hands on anyone else and still come out the other end a Christian. So really is laying on of hands that vital, that important? Why did you include it here? Uh, Whoever the author of, of Hebrew is, Paul, we say, or someone else, Surely, is that vitally important? As I said, I've changed the order around a little bit here. I should have had baptisms before the laying on of hands. What are baptisms? Baptisms is when we are immersed deeper into the things of God. To be baptised in water is signifying to God, I no longer live. I'm burying the old me And I'm coming up out of the water, a new creation in Christ. That's what it signifies. We'll look at more of this in the weeks to come. And so as we are baptised into things, we emerge from them with a greater anointing, a greater blessing. We've moved on in God, whether it's a baptism of the Holy Spirit or of water or of suffering. As we enter into these things, as we immerse ourselves, we come out with an anointing, a blessing to give to others. 
in this Christian life of ours, it's not about what we get. The only getting we get is to give out. If we only do things to receive from him, that's not genuine, that's not real. But we receive so we can give out. It is through the laying on of hands that scripture directs us to give out. Through the baptisms we receive, through the laying on of hands we give out. So looking at those six foundational things, again, we have two that get us into the kingdom, into salvation. We have repentance and faith towards God. That gets us started and moving. Then through our Christian life, it's a matter of receiving, going deeper into God and receiving, and giving out that which God gives to us, imparting it to others. And then finally, we said that the last two are to do with transitioning into the next world. They're actually outside of time. Both the resurrection of the dead will not happen in this world and the judgment will not happen. It's when this world has been brought to a close in that sense. So this is what our Christian life consists of, receiving and giving, receiving and giving. It is through the laying on of hands that scripture directs us to do this. We should look at laying on of hands then and say, how is it important? How is it part of my life's work, my life's ministry? Does it fall to all of us to understand? Well, it's foundational to all of us, so it must. Prior to Christ's baptism, he never performed any supernatural acts. So from the age living up to 30, he lived at home. He was working with his father. Some would say he was a carpenter. Others say he was more a builder than a carpenter. We won't go into all that now, but I just dropped that in there for you to think about something there. Uh, and so Jesus never did any miraculous things. He never did anything supernatural by the power of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. The Holy Spirit was in him without a shadow of a doubt. He lived a sinless life, which you could say, well, that was supernatural. But he never used his hands to, to bless people, as we're going to look at now. So when Jesus comes out of the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit comes on him, it says, and it remains on him. So he has this tremendous anointing by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew, Matthew puts it like this, talking about his baptism of the Holy Spirit. As soon as Jesus was baptised, that is in water, he went up out of the water, and that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and lighting on him. So if you can imagine uh, the way the, the author of this expresses it, the heavens open above him. We talk about an open heaven. That means God's blessing are pouring into our lives. The heavens open and the spirit in all his fullness comes down and rests upon Jesus. I like the way Mark puts it. Mark's always more dramatic. He says this, as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Just, just God's ripping open heaven as though he can't rip it open fast enough. And down comes this tremendous unction of the Holy Spirit that rests upon Jesus. It says in John 3 and uh, 34, 
It says the Holy Spirit came on him without measure. In fact, he couldn't get any more Holy Spirit onto Jesus. The anointing was just in its completeness, given totally to Jesus. Our baptism, our baptism is the same as that. If you've prayed for someone to receive the Holy Spirit or you yourself have received it, uh, depends on how people minister to you, but you feel something coming upon you, the anointing of God coming upon you. You might even feel it thrown through you. You might want to shake or something. And of course, if you're encouraged to speak in tongues or sometimes we just do it without the encouragement, but we should be encouraged because it's something strange. We're not used to dealing with the supernatural. If we're encouraged and we start speaking in tongues, the, the, the blessing of God really flows upon us. There's a slight difference, though, with our baptism and the baptism that Jesus received. We receive a baptism with measure. Jesus received it without measure. So because of who we are, and maybe because of some of the things that are pertaining to our life, the fullness of the Spirit doesn't come upon us in the same way that it came upon Jesus. But heaven is truly opened up to us. But be encouraged, because Scripture tells us we can keep being filled with the Spirit. It's as though if you're not satisfied with the, the baptism of the Spirit and the unction of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit on you, you simply ask God to fill you more and more and more and, and live your life and, and conduct yourself in a way that you can receive more of his Spirit. Well, from that moment forward, as Jesus laid his hands on people, touching them in faith, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit flowed from him, touching everyone that he touched. That's how the power that was upon him was transmitted to other people. He simply laid hands on them. Often he didn't even necessarily do that. He spoke the word only. As he spoke to them, the Holy Spirit's power came and touched the lives and the bodies of people. I want to give you now some scriptural examples and show you how the, the New Testament really emphasises the whole point about laying on of hands. First reference is in Matthew 8 and verse 3. It says that Jesus reached out and he touched the man. Scripture makes a real point of saying that he touched him. Immediately, it says, he was cured of his leprosy. We see this touch with this man who had probably not been touched by any, anybody for a long time, a touch of compassion. But in touching him, the power of God was able to flow into this man's life. It says in Matthew 8 and 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her. This is talking about mother's, Peter, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, sorry, after he came back from that meeting uh, in the synagogue at Capernaum and she was poorly. He simply said he touched her. It was almost like a slight touch. He took her by the hand and he says immediately the fever left her. In Matthew 9 and 25, it says he went in and he took the girl by the hand. We're talking now about Jairus' daughter. Remember, she had died. Um, the, the father hoped he could, 
get Jesus quickly to the house so that before she died, he could do something for her. But once she died, he believed that's the end. There's no point to trouble the master anymore. But what does he do when he goes in the room? He simply takes her by the hand and lifts her up. Nearly in all of these references that we are going to look at, he never prays for them. He never prays and asks God to heal them. He is full of the power of the Spirit himself. He simply has to touch people and the touch, the power flows from him into the lives of these people. There's another example here that's slightly different. It's in Matthew 14 and 31. It's, it's talking about when Peter walks on the water and he starts to, to go down into the water. It says this, Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Yeah. Some interesting things here. Who was Peter doubting? I don't think he was doubting the Lord. He was doubting himself that he could do this. And so that's why Jesus said to him, Peter, why do you doubt yourself? Why do you doubt? You started. You started believing this was possible. You should have just kept going, but you doubted. Another thing I want you to think about here, how impossible it is if Peter's going down in the water and Jesus is standing on the water, how Jesus could lift him up is impossible. It's physically impossible. Uh, I was I remember an old pastor of mine saying, um, he, he gave an illustration once to a couple who came around his house. It was to do with a girl that wanted to go with a young man that wasn't a Christian. So, I mean, it was a bit, um, yeah, I love this pastor very much. He, he said to the, he said to the, uh, the, the girl, he said, uh, you stand on the table and the young man stand on the floor. Now, you're born again, he says, but this young man isn't. He said, you now pull him up. You pull him up to where you are to come and stand on the table. Of course, she couldn't do that, could she? And, now, and then he reversed the order. And he said, now you stand on the floor and the man stand on the table. And then she, she said, he said to the girl, now you pull him down. And she could pull him off the table. Is even a big, strong guy, you see? So the, the point is, you can't lift people up. You, you can't lift them up. People can pull other people down but you can't lift people up. Now, if we take that to an illustration here, it wasn't the strength of Jesus that lifted Peter up of the water. It was impossible for him to do that. It was the supernatural power that was in him. As soon as he touched his hand, he lifted him up. Now, why did Jesus even touch him? Why did he even offer him his hand? He could have just said, Peter, rise. Peter, rise. And he would, have, he would have come up and stood on the water. He wants to make a point that it's through his hands that the power of God is flowing all the time through his hands. Matthew 19 and 13. It says, The little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. I can almost see the mothers bringing their children and saying, Please put your hands on him. Just place your hand on my child. Why did they do that? They knew that when he, Jesus, touched, blessing would flow from him into the life. It said also that he, 
he prayed as well, but it was the touchy. They said, touch him, touch my child. I think this was much more than a pleasant gesture. They knew something. It's interesting, I've done quite a lot of ministry in uh, Africa and other places, and because I suppose uh, I'm white and I'm English and I'm there ministering, they sometimes think, oh, you're very special, or you've got some uh, great anointing, and that's not a bad thing for them to think. And so they've come up to me, they've knelt down in front of me, they've taken my hand, and they put it on their head, as much as to say, bless me, just put your hand on my head and bless me. You see, perhaps they know something. In their simplicity, they know something that we don't know. That it is the power of God that so fills us, then it's through the laying on of hands, the blessing flows from our lives into the lives of others. They definitely recognise this in the ministry of Jesus. There's another verse I want to bring to you. It's in Mark 6. And verse 2, I'm going to read from the authorised version here because I think the NIV really messes it up. Now, that's not that the NIV is bad. I think the authorised version messes some things up and so the NIV messes some things up. So we have to be careful. Always good to read a couple of different versions of the scriptures. But this is what it says in the authorised version, Mark 6 and 2, and I think it's good. It says, and what wisdom is this? which he gives unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. He's done mighty things wrought by his hands. The NIV makes no reference to hands at all. It says, what's this wisdom that has been given to him that he even does miracles? So I think they've lost something there in that translation. Mark 6 and 5 says this, he could not do many miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Why are they making all this emphasis about him laying hands on people all the time, touching people, reaching out to people? This was in his hometown where not many wanted him to touch them and lay his hands on them. There's another one in Mark 7, 32, 33, and then reading on to 35. It says, then some of the people brought to him a man who was deaf and he could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hands on the man. See, they didn't say heal him. They said, you just touch him, you touch him and he'll be healed. They knew they had seen him use his hands hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And through the laying on of hands, People were healed and touched. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus, what did he do? He put his fingers in his ears, then he spat and he touched the man's tongue. He used his hands again. At this, the man's ears were opened and his tongue was loose and he began to speak plainly. Jesus never said a word to this man. He never prayed to his father to heal him. He simply touched him. He laid his hands on him. Last one is in Mark 8. Well, the last one I've got for you. There are more. Mark 8, 23 and 25. It says, he took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside the village. When he had spit in the man's eyes and put his 
hands on him. So even though he had spat on him, he still used his hands. He placed his hands on him. Jesus answered, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking about. So what did Jesus do next? Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. Well, it goes on and on and on. Did you miss this? When you read your Bibles, did you see this? Did you see how much he used his hands? Sometimes he would say something, sometimes he wouldn't. Sometimes he would say something and use his hands, and sometimes he would just use his hands. What he never did, he never prayed for the sick. Never. He just laid his hands on the sick. He touched them. I read that verse to you from John 3 and 34, saying he was anointed without measure. If you read on a bit, the following verse, it says this, the father loves the son and has placed everything, where? In his hands. Now, is this just a play on words? Or is he saying something like, well, all responsibility and authority and power has been given unto Jesus, we could say, use that expression, he's placed it in our hands. We are responsible for it. Or does he mean something more than that? That actually it is through the hands, the laying on of hands, that wonderful things happened. The anointing of the Holy Spirit that was upon him, the reservoir of the Holy Spirit that was within him. Remember, the Spirit comes without measure upon him. It fills him up as though like a reservoir is filled up within him. And as he goes out and touches people, the power that's within simply flows. It flows from him as he touches people, as he reaches out to Peter, as he takes the, the hand of a dead girl, as he, as he just touches the, the fevered woman, uh, as he picks up the little children. The power that is within him, the anointing of God, the Holy Spirit of God, flows through these hands. He simply... Touch them. Simply touch them. Simply laid his hands on them. You know, we're followers of Jesus. We're to do what Jesus did. We're to lay hands on the sick. And the anointing and the overflow of the Spirit that is within us should flow from our body, through our hands, into the bodies of men and women, and children who need a touch from the Lord. He can't touch them, but he can touch them from you. See, we sometimes say, and it sounds, it sounds very religious, that Lord, touch them. The Lord says, no, I'm not going to touch them. You touch them. I can't touch them. I'm in heaven. You're on earth. You touch them. You put your hands on them. You allow the power of God that's within you to flow into the lives and bodies of men and women around you. You lay hands on the sick. You touch the sick. You, you reach out with your hands. When Jesus spoke to the 11 in Mark 16, 17 and 18, he said this, and these signs will accompany those who believe. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Well, that's part of the commission. He sent us forward to lay hands on people and that which is in you 
will flow out of you into them. We've got to make sure there's something in us, though, to flow out. We must be full of the Spirit, be being filled with the Spirit continually, that the power of God would flow from our lives. Similarly, in Matthew 10 and 7 and 8, he says, As you go, preach the message. The kingdom of heaven is here. He said, then demonstrate it. How are we to demonstrate the kingdom of God? Well, we are to heal the sick. We are to raise the dead. We are to cleanse those who have leprosy. And we are to drive out demons. Freely, freely you have received, you now freely give. How often we say, God, you do this. Now, it's only by the power of God I understand. But he said, you have freely received, you freely give. We say, God, will you please do this? And God says, no, you have freely received, you freely give. You freely lay hands on the sick. You cast out the demons. You raise the dead. You cleanse the lepers. You do it. You do it. Do it through your hands. Perhaps we should put more faith in God's power flowing through our hands than flowing through our prayers. I'm not saying don't pray. I'm saying we need to copy what Jesus did. We need to follow him. He showed us to lay hands on the sick and expect that through the laying on of hands, the sick would receive something of the fullness of the spirit that was in us that could flow from us to them. As the Holy Spirit is freely poured into your life, let it freely flow out, healing and delivering, touching all those are around you. John 7, 37 and 39. This is Jesus before he ascended back into heaven. It's on the Feast of Tabernacles and he's standing uh, on these steps that are leading down from the temple. And it says this, On the last and the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So where was this, the power going to flow from? It was going to flow from the people. It was going to flow from them. On his return, we find that Jesus goes to the Father and he asks him to send the Holy Spirit out upon the church. And for those who are filled, we find that they're thirsty. He says, if you're thirsty, come to me. If you want more of me, if you want the fullness of the Spirit in your life, come to me. I will satisfy you. I will quench your thirst. But also, he says, blessings will flow from within you. They flow from within us. They don't flow from God. They flow from God through us into the people who are needy. We are the channels of the blessing of God. Blessings will flow from within them, touching the lives of those in need around them. Now, you might discount yourself. 
you could say, oh, no, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not special. I'm not a pastor or I'm not an apostle or a prophet. I'm just an ordinary follower of Jesus. I'm, I'm just a, a disciple. Well, I'm going to draw your attention to what happened to uh, Paul in the ninth chapter of Acts. The ninth chapter of Acts, we read about a man called Saul. Well, Saul was later to become called Paul. And we read about his conversion experience. Remember, he's on his way to Damascus. He has papers from the high priest. And his idea is to lay hold of Christians wherever he finds them, to throw them into prison or take them back to Jerusalem to stand some sort of trial. And if they're executed, they're executed. That's all is really in his mind. He's trying to eradicate totally the name of Jesus. He wants to remove it. He thinks it's an anathema against the whole Jewish faith and the Jewish movement. We find as he's going uh, on that journey, there's a bright light from heaven and Jesus himself speaks to him and he falls uh, from his horse and he's made blind. Then he's, he's told to, he's to go to Damascus and uh, stay at the house of a man called Judas who lives on Straight Street. And then while he's there, uh, a disciple of Jesus is asked to go and to minister to him. The man that God or Jesus picks to send to minister to Paul, he describes him as a disciple, not as an apostle or anyone who has a particular office in the church, he simply calls him a disciple. Acts chapter 9, 11 says this, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Paul, for he is praying in a vision and he has seen a man come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. So God clearly speaks to Paul and says, Paul, I'm going to send you a man. He'll come and he'll just simply lay his hands on you. He's not a special man. He's just a disciple. If you read those early verses in Acts 9, you'll discover Ananias is just a disciple. So Ananias hears what Christ is telling him to do. He knows the reputation of Paul and he's a little bit fearful of going. He thinks, is this a trap? Who's telling me to go here? Am I going to find myself tied up and bound and uh, in all sorts of trouble? Anyway, he knows it's the voice of the Lord and so he goes. It says this in Acts 9, 17 and 19. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road as you, as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and he was baptised and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Did he pray for Paul? No. No, he didn't. He simply laid his hands on him. He did exactly what he told him to do. And as he laid his hands on Paul, he did what he told him to do. He laid his hands on him. And whatever was wrong with Paul's eyes, he had been blind now for three days. We don't know. The scripture doesn't say. It says the scales fell from his eyes and he could see. Simply through the laying on of hands. Not praying. The laying on of hands. The scales fell. And also he was filled with the Holy Spirit as well. Simply through the laying on of hands. There was no record 
of him praying and the Holy Spirit poured into his life. Can I suggest to you that which was in Ananias, just an ordinary disciple who was full of the Spirit when he went and was doing what the Lord told him to do and laid his hands, the power that was in Ananias, it flowed into Paul. There was a transfer of the Spirit. Paul's experience shows us that through the laying on of hands, there was blessing, there was healing, and there was the fullness of the Spirit transferred to him. Later we read that Paul did similar things. So whatever happened to Paul that day, he was filled with the Spirit, he kept himself full of the Spirit all the time, uh, as he was before the Lord, full of the Spirit. Then it says this in Acts 19 and 6. This is when he was uh, in Ephesus. It says, When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. No mention of praying, simply the laying on of hands and we see the transfer of power coming upon these. Through whatever was in Ananias flowed into Paul. Paul kept himself full of the Spirit and he was able to do what Ananias did. In the ministry of Jesus, he never prayed to his father to heal the sick. He never. You can't find it there. If you look through, there's about 23, 24 uh, healing miracles recorded us of Jesus. And what we find that he did, he, he either spoke, like I said, he spoke and touched or simply touched uh, the man with leprosy. It said he touched the man and said, be clean. With the Roman centurion servant, Jesus said, go. Jesus said, go, and it'll be done for you. Peter's mother-in-law, it says, we've looked at this, he touched her hand. The two men from Gadara, he said to the demons, go, and they came out of him. To the paralysed man, Jesus said, get up, take your mat and go home. The two blind men, Jesus touched their eyes. The man mute and possessed, he drove out the spirit. So what was in him, the anointing that was in him, he simply touched or spoke the words. I was fascinated as I studied this and I thought, well, does that follow through to us Christians? So I went through the whole of the book of Acts and I found 10 references to either Peter or Paul because the Acts are the Acts of the Apostles and basically it's the record of Paul and Peter's ministry at the start of the church. There's about 10 references to them healing the sick. And I found that they did exactly the same. Do you remember Peter when he went to the Gate Beautiful uh, at the entrance to the city and there was a man there who had been bound for many years. Did he pray for him? Did he ask God to heal him? No, he didn't. He said he took him by the hand. It actually says this. He says he reached out and took him by the right hand. I don't know why they make an emphasis of the right hand. And it says strength entered into him and he jumped up. In the 10 references that I read to healing, I only found two of them made any reference to praying. But it wasn't that they were praying for God to heal. They were doing the healing, but they prayed for another reason. Remember when Peter went to the house of Dorcas and he was taken in. Of course, Dorcas was already dead. 
And so I'm sure he would have prayed and said, Lord, what am I supposed to do? This isn't a healing. This woman is dead. Do you want me to raise her from the dead? Do you want me to, 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 to command, as it were, the spirit to come back into her? And so after he had finished praying and was, he got the confirmation from God, he said he turned to Dorcas and the, he, he commanded, as it were, the life to come back into her. And so we see the, the power of God coming. Remember when that young man, Ichikus, fell out of the window and died. His body hit the floor. He went down about three or four flights, you know, because it was late and Paul preached all night and the poor young man was exhausted. And, he, he fought, and he, as he goes down, the boy's dead. Does he pray for him? No, he doesn't. He lies on top of him. He puts his arms around him, it says, and then he picks him up. And he was completely restored back to life again. Now, I'm not telling you not to pray. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't misunderstand me. And this other thought has come to me as well. We're doing, I'm, I'm preaching about laying on of hands and it's, it's COVID and we're not allowed to touch anyone. Okay, so I'm not going to lay hands on you because I can't get within six feet of you. I'm not supposed to touch you anyway. Anyway, this, this goes above uh, COVID and everything else. The scripture goes beyond that. But we will behave ourselves while we're supposed to. Uh, and then, but see, it's through this, the, the touch of our body or the, or the laying on of hands. Remember on one occasion where the woman uh, had this issue of bleeding and, and Jesus didn't do anything. She touched him. She reached out with her hand and touched him and the power flowed. See, it flowed from him. And as she drew on him, this is the point I'm making. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. As charismatic Christians, we are to be full of the Spirit. And we, we are a powerhouse. We are a source of touching and healing and delivering and power. That is what true charismatic believers are. It's not that just we sing lively songs. We, we know what it is to be full of the power of God. Peter's shadow, remember once... It said that as he walked down the street, they brought the bodies out and they laid them at the side of the road that the shadow of Peter might fall on them. Well, it didn't say that they were healed, but it must have happened for them to even think to do that. Simply his shadow falling on them, the anointing, the power that was in him, it even flowed through a shadow that he made. And we know that the sweatbands that were on Paul on one occasion, aprons and handkerchiefs that were on his body, they took them off him. Somehow the anointing that was in Paul, it got into these aprons and got into these handkerchiefs and they simply placed them on people and they were delivered and they were healed for the anointing that came from Paul onto them. No, no question of anyone praying for anything. It was the anointing that was in these men and women of God. A couple of things also that the laying on of hands is about. When we send out from the church missionaries or apostle-type people, the church is to lay hands on them. So the anointing that rests upon the, the leadership of the church, it flows into the lives of these men and women that go out. It says in Acts 13 and 3, So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. They knew in the early church that through the laying on of hands, whatever blessing was in them was imparted to those that they laid their hands on. 
Also, it's for the appointing of elders or deacons in the local church. It says in Acts 6, 5 and 6, They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit also. They, they presented these men to the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. So in the early church, we see it's used for healing, for the baptism in the Holy Spirit, for commissioning Christian workers, for imparting spiritual gifts, for appointing deacons and elders. Have we lost it? Did we were never taught about this? Is it something that has been stolen from the church? Is it a truth that somehow has evaded us? I want to encourage you this evening. I want you, when you pray for the sick next time, believe that you have within you an anointing of the Spirit. And when you lay hands on the sick, it isn't so much the words that you pray, it is the fact that you have faith that God will be using you as a channel, that the Spirit of God might flow through you and enter into the lives of these people, bringing about healing or deliverance or whatever. Streams, streams of living water will flow from within you, touching the needy all around you. For this reason, the ordinance of laying on of hands logically takes its place among the great foundational teachings of Christ himself. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed lesson two of the Foundations module and please come back next week for lesson three. Also, if you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can now do so by going onto our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online payment to support the work we do. Arise Ministry, a living legacy. Thank you.